Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jamie, for um, for joining us. And uh, a little bit of background. Obviously, Jamie's worked in the Russia sphere for for a couple of decades. Um, originally, as a lawyer, had a law firm there. Um, graduate of Tulane University, and from law into human rights activist. Um, on that note, and one of the drivers of the Magnitsky Act, not only in the United States, but across the world. Um, and on that note, Jamie, I'll lead it on to you where you'll talk about sanctions and, and the work you've done over the past sure. few years. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, thank you. So yeah, to follow up on kind of what Mark said, I have a strange background here. Um, I went to Russia in 1991 um, with zero plan of what I was going to do. Uh, knowing full well that the only thing I didn't want to do was law, which is what I studied. And I ended up setting up Russia's first independent foreign law firm. Um, and it kind of grew into a big thing accidentally. Um, and it was all commercial law and, and hedge fund law. And we were probably the largest, we, we probably were, we were the go-to law firm for Russian, uh, for head, for foreign hedge funds that wanted to invest in the Russian market uh, and ended up with, probably $6 billion um, running through our office. Uh, we were their back, their back office, so to speak. So we would say to a hedge fund, um, since everything here is so technically and administratively complicated, like when you buy shares in Russia, a contract actually has to be signed and hedge fund managers don't have time for that. So all the compliance, everything they had to do, we just did it. They bought and sold their shares and we, we did everything else. Um, was how we ran into trouble uh, because when a bunch of uh, corrupt officers decided to steal from their own government. Their plan was to get hedge funds that had shut down and then arrange tax refunds for them. And of course, since they didn't control these hedge funds, they had to literally hijack them. So that's what happened to Hermitage. Uh, the authorities literally raided my office uh, with machine guns, um, took all the documents and we wouldn't give them back. And the next thing we knew, uh, HSBC Guernsey was no longer the custodian for the Hermitage fund. It was some uh, killers out in Kazan, Russia, and they uh, hired their own lawyers because now they ran the companies. And the next thing you knew, they arranged this fraudulent tax refund of $230 million that the Hermitage Fund had, had paid. So that's the Hermitage story in a nutshell. My partner, law partner, Sergei Magnitsky, exposed it, was arrested, eventually arrested and killed in a Russian jail because of that. And then Bill Browder turned from hedge fund manager to human rights activist. And he and myself and a few other people we set up the global Magnitsky justice campaign where we went after these people, um, blowing up a few banks along the way, as you probably know, but also creating this um, regime of sanctions, human rights sanctions and corruption sanctions known as Magnitsky sanctions in the U.S. And in some countries that um, were afraid of offending the Russians, but still accepted the uh, Magnitsky sanctions, such as the EU. They're not called Magnitsky sanctions by the, by the EU government, but they are by everybody in the government and everybody else. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about how sanctions work before Ukraine, um, how they're working now, and the issues that we're going to face now, that we are facing now, and the issues that we're going to face afterwards, whatever afterwards means. So in the past, the way sanctions worked was somebody like me would prepare a uh, detailed dossier uh, submission on somebody who had done something wrong, who was corrupt or a human rights abuser. I would, it would typically be 30 pages long. It would take me a good part of a month to prepare it. And I would send one of these to OFAC or its equivalent somewhere in the world. 
and then silence. And OFAC would, you, you put a lot of these in and other human rights groups do it and then you wait. And then what really happens is that the, if Russia hasn't done anything bad at the end of the year, OFAC kind of picks a few, goes, yeah, we'll take the accused guys. But usually sanctions were used as a political tool. So unless you cut up a journalist in an embassy, um, it was difficult to get on the sanctions list, uh, even if all the evidence was there. So our human rights groups, at least our, our strategy was, we would prepare these uh, dossiers against lots of people, like having ammunition. And the one thing we could always count on is that Russia was going to do something unspeakable sooner or later, and that when it did, OFAC would be looking for names to sanction. And so the, our, our ammunition was ready, so to speak. Now, this is how it used to work. Um, and after the Magnitsky uh, Global Justice Campaign, which is, I mean, Bill Browder still does that, but I, I now work mostly with uh, Alexei Navalny and the anti or with his people because he's in prison at the moment, and with the Anti-Corruption Foundation doing what I just described. Then we have this invasion. All of a sudden, everything changes. Essentially, uh, Europe and the UK uh, created new regimes. Switzerland created a regime. And it's basically, let's sanction everybody. And I'll talk about individual sanctions before I go to sectorial and business and, and entity sanctions. But let's sanction everybody. Let's just immediately put a freeze on them, which they've done. Now, what's interesting about this is that they haven't frozen them because they're corrupt or, or because they're human rights abusers, even though they've got a lot of those on their list. They've just frozen them um, you know, as a kind of tool to put pressure on the Russian government, which I agree with. But we're going to have a very interesting question of what do you do when this is over, when you have a bunch of people who earned their money corruptly um, or who are terrible human rights abusers or who supported this war, who gets off this list? And that's going to be a big question. Um, the other uh, question we're going to have is that these people are going to sue, I'll, I'll, at least the rich people are. Most of the people on the sanctions list aren't going to sue because they don't have any money and they don't really, you know, bummer if they can't go to Europe for vacation. They probably weren't coming to the U.S., but all the big guys who have money are going to sue. And we're going to need grounds to keep those people on the sanctions list. Many of those people were added with a 56-day time period in the UK. And if they don't, and if we can't prove the case, supposedly they have to be let off. Now that's for individual sanctions. Now we have also sectoral sanctions. These sectoral sanctions, if you, they come in various different kinds. But if you look at banking, for instance, we have complete blocking sanctions, which is what you have against VTB. Uh, VTB so you can't do any business with them at all. And we have um, sanctions on correspondent banking accounts on uh, on Sparebank, which are referred to. Let me look it up because I always forget the actual name. Uh, correspondent and payable through account sanctions. Um, and they're widely different. So VTB, you cannot do business with VTB. You can actually do business with Sparebank in, 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 in many um, in many different situations. Um, but it's just a bit difficult because there are no correspondent bank accounts for Sparebank, but you're not necessarily breaking the law if you do business with them. Now, um, one second, while I just get this list right. So one of the questions, so one of the things that's going on right now is we're sanctioning everything left, right, and center. And we're also on individual sanctions starting to harmonize sanctions and on entity sanctions. So we're, governments are really looking at what other governments are doing right now. And they're saying, who should we sanction? Um, who have our colleagues uh, or allies sanctioned who we haven't? Um, this is easier on individual sanctions. So on individual sanctions, I, for one, I, I, I created a, a site called Nowhere to Run because Boris Johnson and Liz Truss said people will have nowhere to hide. Well, not really true if you're sanctioned in uh, 
in the in the U.S., but not in in Europe or not in the U.K. So to encourage sanctioning everybody everywhere, I just created this site where it instantly shows you who's been sanctioned somewhere but not sanctioned in your jurisdiction. You just click on your flag, you find out all the people who've been sanctioned somewhere but not in your jurisdiction, and you can immediately know, um, you know, who's sanctioned where. Um, this is also going on in sectoral sanctions, but obviously, um, look, everybody wants an out for the businesses that are important to them. The, the Italians tried to get an out for high fashion, right? They want to sell high fashion to the Russians. Um, so the sectoral sanctions are reasonably well aligned, but less aligned than individuals. So what's happening now um, is, is rather interesting. You, you see an exodus of uh, West, you see Western companies, there's exodus from Russia. Um, some of them are leaving completely. Some of them, if they're law firms and accounting firms, often let their subsidiaries go or sell their subsidiaries um, so that the subsidiaries can continue to service the clients that uh, the big international firms can no longer service. There's some question about whether they would then buy them back after this. Who knows? Uh, the other thing you're seeing, uh, interestingly enough, is that there are Russian companies that are being hit by sanctions that have to that basically are, are going to be forced to sell their subsidiaries or close their subsidiaries, which presents some possible uh, opportunities. If they're not completely blocked, if it's possible to deal with them, might be able to pick up some Russian subsidiaries on the cheap that have actually good uh, businesses that they have to uh, divest in. But so where do we go from here, though? And, and what's going to happen? So this war is going to end or wind down in, in some way. And I've been saying for about two weeks when it was obvious that the Russians, this wasn't going well for the Russians, that the best way, the most probable way this war ends is that the Russians declare victory. They take everything from, from Crimea going up east, connecting to, to the mainland of Russia, and, and they declare victory, and they, and they say that they've neutralized the country and somehow denazified it or whatever. Um, and then what happens? Because there's going to be pressure to drop a lot of these sanctions, and there's going to be pressure not to drop a lot of these sanctions. Um, it, it, the idea that if all of a sudden Putin carves away 20% of Ukraine, leaves these cities in rubble, um, and that we're going to just say, hey, we can, we're going to do business with you again, all these sanctions against your bank stop, I think is unrealistic uh, and, and also immoral. And there's going to be great pressure not to do that. So... You know, I think they're when do they get the reserves unfrozen? When do when does Vitebe get unsanctioned? When does when does Sparebank get unsanctioned? These are the kinds of questions that we nobody's probably been thinking about yet because we've been trying we've been running so fast to sanction that we haven't thought about the off ramps. But this is certainly a, a question that governments are gonna have to start thinking about what kinds of entities we want to let off, what kinds of people we want to let off. What kinds of people we law off under what kinds of circumstances? I mean, you, you finally frozen Usmanov and Abramovich's um, assets in different places. Um, we know how those assets were earned. Do we simply want to give them back to them? Um, do we want to force some of them to contribute to the to, to reparations? I, I don't have the answers to these questions, but what I can tell you is that this is going to be um, a very very political process, a public process that not everybody's going to be happy with, and, and, and it creates an awful lot of uncertainty. So there's no way to advise anybody um, when the market gets normal again or anything else. Um, and I think that's about 
what I wanted to cover before throwing it open to, to people for, for questions and, and discussion. Thank you, Jamie. Um, Jamie, I do, I, I do have a question. How, how often have you seen people taken off the sanctions list and how much time does it take to happen? Well, it, first of all, it's really hard to get off a sanctions list. But then again, this is a different, um, this is a very different situation than the way people were added before. In, in the past, as I said, an awful lot of research was done um, and, 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 and those designations were, uh, if anything, they were overproved when they were made. That's not what's happened here. What's happened here is we have we have sanctioned um, people wholesale. Uh, most of whom probably deserve to be sanctioned, but that's they still have to have a case built up against them, and the rich ones are going to are going to fight it. And as for the entities, look, there's a lot of there's always business pressure, right, to to let uh, to to, to return things as they were somebody's not making money when this is when this is going on but the question becomes again okay so if, if there's a agreement signed and and, and a ceasefire um the certainly the terms of that agreement are going to affect things i mean if the russians turn around and say thank you for your land um thank you for uh agreeing to our terms and we we actually aren't contributing like one ruble to to the rest to rebuilding Ukraine, um, I don't really know how the West is going to go to that. Now, if the Russians say we are going to contribute to rebuilding, still, I, I mean, it, what's been done is done, and it's horrible, and there isn't really an amount of money that makes it okay. So I, I don't know how fast they're going to be delisting things, um, and, and I don't know how to answer your question. I mean, it, it could be quicker than I would like to see it happen, um, simply because it was put on so quickly for a situation that some people may decide, well, it's, it's over now, or it's, or at least the hostilities have stopped. So I don't know how to answer that. Thank you, Jamie. And I don't want to, I don't want to mess up your flow, but I do, we've talked about China. Am I wrong? Do I remember James, you, you had a China off you have some China connectivity? Um, I'm not sure. Where I'm going with this is, is we're trying to get insights. Maybe you're not as, <laughs> Your boots aren't on the ground as there, but as to what role China can play in in all of these this this theater, is that something you might touch on? Or, and if not, it's okay. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, it's actually the role China can play is not being helpful. <laughs> that's really the that's really the role that China can play. Um, and you know, if you think about this, this is how we got to have given China pause. So there's all this talk about what China might do to Taiwan, right? I'm not saying that China isn't going that way, but but I don't think China is going to do anything to Taiwan before it figures out how to protect its reserves of currency from from having this this trick played to them. So I, I think that in a way this is this is bought Taiwan sometime. But as far as Russia goes, um, look, they, China buys a lot of Russian energy. There's a rumor out there that that they sell at a great loss. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they sell at a loss to what it costs them to produce, or certainly a loss compared to what they could be selling for anybody else. But uh, as long as China doesn't really get involved in aiding this war, which I hope is winding down. Um, great. Yeah, look, other questions are, if you believe the Germans, they're going to be off Russian oil and off Russian um, coal by the end of the year and 90% down in Russian energy. Now, I don't know how they do 90% down in Russian energy in two years. 
Um, but I would think they're mad if they don't do that Be- because we've been yelling for years that this is exactly what was going to happen, not that there would be an invasion of Ukraine, but that when something Russians did something bad, Germany and all of Europe would be held hostage. That is exactly what's happened. Um, and, and that really shouldn't be allowed to happen. So there should be a lot of political pressure to make sure that Europe is weaned off of this, which means there should be a lot of opportunity in providing alternate energy, uh, whether it be alternate gas or, or, or nuclear, but just anything that doesn't come from Russia should be a growth industry if this keeps it on. And, you know, look, we have, we have Schroeder and Merkel to thank for this. And I mean, you know, I, I, as the human rights person, I, I, I really admire Merkel and as a don't get dependent on Russia, I'm not really happy about this, but, but I think that that, that's going to, assuming that Germany keeps its word and the rest, and the rest of Europe goes that way, there, any energy that doesn't come from Russia should be a great growth opportunity. Thank you, Jamie. So um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. uh, Jamie, earlier this morning, we were talking about, you know, possible resolutions of things and what might happen um, in particular with regard to Putin, I guess with regard to sanctions and I'll put it this way, how pissed off do you think the oligarchs are? At, at Putin, and and do you do you think that that could be any kind of a spark for maybe not transition, but at least moderation? Yeah, you know, I mean, the ones that are here with their big boats and their houses and their and their Western lifestyle, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they want to dump him, right? But but then again, it looks like Abramovich was poisoned, so it looks like Putin doesn't mind dumping them, right? Um, but uh. Again, I, I don't think any of these oligarchs have that much power, but as a class, they have power as a as a whole. You know, there may be some truth to the matter that that one or two of these guys can't do anything. But I, it's hard to believe that 500 people do. But 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 at the end of the day, Russia is a police state. And look, I've been I've sat in front of investigators. Um, I've had to. I've had to have myself checked into hospitals so that investigators can't put me in prison while while I wait for people to make decisions that the people who paid for a criminal case against me um, don't have any grounds. You have Alexei Navalny, who's been tried in a prison camp um, for charges that make no sense to give him another nine years. There is you're dealing with a police state and the people. Uh, those oligarchs are afraid of those 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 people. Those people, the, those those prosecutors, some of them who don't make much money, um, and those investigators, they, they may be no ones, but they can bring down the Hudorkovskis of this world. They can bring down the Abramoviches of this world. That's that's the uh, the real power in the state. And until you get the the people who run those, the the people who show up at those security council meetings, until those people want to get rid of Putin. Um, you're not getting, you're not, you're not calling off the dogs. They, they still have their, their attack dogs there and they can take out any oligarch they want. Um, so I don't know if Putin's going to go, but I, I think that really, and again, I, I, I'm an accidental human rights guy. I started out as, as I said, hedge fund lawyer, right? As did Bill. But it would be unforgivable of us, both morally, but also strategically to, not keep Russia contained as long as Vladimir Putin is president. The Baltics have it right. They absolutely understand that they're next. Um, and uh, 
this you've got one guy who sits at the far end of the table who doesn't listen too hard to what anybody else is saying and, and he makes all the decisions and, and and we can't allow our security to be based on that so i really think we have to keep the sanctions on him we have to keep the sanctions on russia we have to put them somewhere between north korea and iran and somewhere but not not um a member of, of the Western community while he's leading them and while we face this danger. And maybe they'll throw him out. Yeah. Hi, Jamie, this is Roger here. Um, if you were to rank the, the, pressure, the greatest pressure points on, on Putin, how, how would you rank them? Is it Western sanctions? Is it the, um, you know, pressure, you just mentioned the oligarchs, them or security forces or other? Um, internal dissent among political ranks there, not that he has a lot of opposition, of course. Um, the people, you know, in terms of them learning the truth and then trying to force them out Arab Spring style, where's the, in, if you were to rank it and you were to play puppet master and to, to apply the greatest pressure on him, where does that come from and how do you see that um, evolving? Well, I can tell you this. If, if, if two weeks ago we had the technology to beam this war live into every Russian household, Putin would be thrown out because he made a mistake. He could have done this war and told the truth. He's got everybody believing that Ukraine's going to build nuclear weapons, that there's a bi- there U.S. bio factories in, uh, throughout the country, that they were going to join NATO, and, and that they're run by Nazis who are performing a, Jewish Nazis who are <laughs> performing a genocide on Russian speakers, right? So he got everybody to believe that, and maybe he could have gotten away with his war. If he had just said that and invaded, but he didn't do that. There hasn't been a war. He's flattened Russian speaking cities. Um, so he's got a weakness, at least for now. In fact, that he lied and, and that there are, we suppose, 15,000 Russian kids who are coming home in body bags or just dog tags are coming home and probably an equal amount wounded. That creates a certain weakness. How long it'll remain a weakness if they declare peace now and we get past this, I don't know. Um, Putin manages the media for a good reason uh, because he fears it now and, and i mean this if you look at putin as a person putin has made it clear over and over again that one of the worst things he ever saw was Gaddafi's murder um and you know i i, I don't I, I don't assume that there's anybody out there that's got a lot of sympathy for Gaddafi, but putin self-identifies with being you know dragged out of a drain pipe thrown over a hood and killed um Putin, when you see him sitting at the end of that table, it's not like a COVID measure. I mean, it is, but everybody else on the other end of the table is sitting together. Um, you've, so, so it's not like we're all sitting at a table separated by, by two meters. That he doesn't eat and drink at functions and that he just fired 1,000 people who tend to him. This is a very, very paranoid guy um, who can no longer live normally because of his paranoia. Um, and, and, and so... Getting anywhere near him, anybody getting anywhere near him is difficult, but he's vulnerable to changes in public opinion um, should they occur. And, they, you know, they could have occurred here if the truth got out. He's vulnerable to sectoral sanctions because sectoral sanctions keep Russia poor. And, and, and there will be and I think that's unfortunately important. Um, and, and I say this to somebody whose best friends are Russian, um, but but it's like. If you want to force regime change, then the regime can't be economically successful. And I think we do want to force regime change. Whatever people 
And Biden, maybe it was a bad idea for Biden to say that while we're trying to get a, a peace deal or a ceasefire. But the fact of the matter is, yes, we want a regime change because we're not safe while that person runs this country. So pressure, anything that happens, any, any, he does fear the masses, but at the moment he's got it under control. He has told a big lie. And if it's exposed in time, it may cause him a problem. Uh, economic crisis for the country, especially long and continuing, uh, is not good for his base. Um, but one thing that I think we also have to think about is what's the off-ramp for sanctions? So the idea is sanctions are supposed to be there's some kinds of sanctions that are just a punishment for life. You're a human rights abuser. You're sanctioned for life. But what we've done to the oligarchs and what we've done to a lot of other people probably should be a stick and carrot type of thing. We've sanctioned you and we're willing to let you off. You know, I don't know. Should Putin not be president anymore? Period. I mean, you, you know, you don't have to you don't have to have a war crimes trial. We'll do that for you if he happens to like if we catch him on his yacht in, in, in Italian waters. We'll, we'll do that for you. But but what we should be offering is a huge, a huge amount of off ramps for certain types of actions so that people know what they have to do or what has to happen in the country so that they get off so that there's some incentive. Because if there are no off ramps, then you force these people into Putin's team. I mean, if the only person is, who's going to protect Osmanov or Abramovich is Putin, then, you know, all their yachts are going to end up in the Seychelles or in Russia. And that's the only places they're going to be. And eventually that's what they're going to look at for protection. So it's important we create these off ramps incentives um, so that things happen that we want. We need to decide what those things are. And then we need to broadcast the off ramps. And that'll weaken the regime as well. James, what 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 is a post-Putin Russia look like? I mean, one of, one of the concerns I have is uh, a balkanization of Russia or, or a repeat of, of the breakup of the Soviet Union, where you get different regions controlling different assets and different weapons. Is that is that a way to think about this or, or am I wrong? Um, look, there's been I mean, the Russians have been, you know, afraid for years that they're going to lose territory to the Chinese. Um, the only reason uh, Chechnya is part of Russia now is because we send them a huge amount of money. If the money were to stop, Europe would probably not be so quick to stay there. I, I don't really know. What, what, I, what I do know is this situation is bad for us, and it's bad for Russians. Um, it's bad for us because, again, it's one crazy guy. Um, and it's bad for Russians because, I mean, you know, I live there, and I had to leave. Um, when, when you're, when the people who protect you, who are sworn to protect you, are the people you fear most because they're all stealing your stuff. I mean, th th this war is a great example. The only example I've seen of, of the good of corruption. I mean, fall corruption forever, but, but look at how much corruption has hurt the Russian army and the Russian military. It's like something like 20% of the missiles work. Um, they can't maintain their equipment. They, it, they, the equipment is, is faulty. They don't have systems in place. And, and this is one of the major problems that you have with Russia. It's not just that you're living, you know, we say, oh, you're living in a police state and that's bad. Yeah, that's bad. But, but it's also bad that just like nothing, nothing works. Uh, and that includes everything from the hospitals to the schools because everybody has a, everybody has a day job, but it's not what they're hired for. If you're, if you're, if you're hired to be in the police, your day job is taking bribes to get people off. And if you're hired to be in the military, it, it, it's, it's skimming. And so nothing, the country doesn't work. So I don't know, um, what alternate leadership would look like. 
and Russians always go, oh my God, we might have chaos, that this is better. But no, I mean, enough already. This isn't, this isn't better. And, and Ukraine has paid the worst price out of anybody. Thanks. Jamie, thank you very much. Um, we're going to, we, Bill, we, we need to, um, we'll take one last question. I don't know. Adam, stay, stay on. I think, let's, let's, let's pause, Bill. Let's, Just let, you, you've got a program, Adam. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Okay. Um, Bill, you can ask the question after DJ. DJ, Jamie, thank you very much for your insight and your uh, participation here. I'm going to have to jump um, off. I apologize for that, um, but I, I've got to get to something. But um, really, thank you for having me, and I hope that was informative. Thanks. Okay. Our moderator. Our moderator, our moderator yeah, very video. informative. Thank you so much. <laughs> you sound like a robot. Jake, yeah. I sound like a robot? Okay. You're good now. You're good. You're good. Go. Okay. Okay. Hello, DJ, are you yes. there? Yes, I am. Great. Well, hey, it's good. Thank you. thank you for joining, DJ. Just to remind everyone, DJ, you presented what a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think it was. Um, DJ's background, very much uh, Russia, Russia expert, ran corporation pedigree, um, running his own advisory, Longview out of California, and. Uh, Lived in Russia and knows Russia very well. On that note, DJ, I'll hand it over to you. Well, thank you. And it's uh, nice to see you again and to be with you again. What I wanted to do is just give you a, my quick take on where we are right now, because I think we're at a fundamental pivot point. Um, and I address some of these larger issues, including the China question, um, the Putin question, uh, this, uh, add a, a little bit of Cutler on, uh, on sanctions as well. Um, I agree a lot with what, uh, Jamie said. Um, but I, I, I just really wanna, um, I think we actually see an end game here. It's not necessarily a great end game, but, um, from a kind of a sense of hopelessness, a lot of people were feeling two weeks ago. Um, I think what we're seeing is so significant concessions by Russia, um, and some cases a little bit faster than I expected. Um, they've dropped the they've dropped the demand for denazification, which in itself suggests that maybe they realize that this bizarre claim does, isn't working. Um, so that's a good thing. They've dropped the demand that Ukraine be demilitarized. Um, they apparently have agreed at least to talk about the EU, uh, Ukraine joining the EU, which is quite remarkable. Um, and obviously Kiev has made, it seems to be making some concessions, obviously around NATO, um, but perhaps also saying, you know what, we're going to lose some of our territory and, and de facto maybe even turning into de jure. Um, I think the fact that Russia has um, seems to be publicly acknowledging, which is quite remarkable, that they can't take Kiev. Um, they certainly can't take Western Ukraine, which also probably means they can't take Odessa. Um, and perhaps will retreat to fighting for uh, the Donbass. Um, I think what will be really interesting to see and what we're going to have to watch for is the, the coast, the rest of the coast and Mariupol 
in particular. Um, because what Mariupol is gaining now, what it has acquired is just what the Soviets called a hero city, which was these cities that, that suffered tremendously um, in World War II, like Leningrad and Stalingrad, um, Kiev. Um, and like, is it, what, what is its status and who, um, who, who is basically responsible for its rebuilding? Um, and what does it stand for? I think it's quite, as, as some of you might know, um, one of the most important steel mills in, in, in the Soviet Union and Ukraine certainly was in Mariupol. It's been completely leveled. Um, this was a major exporter, a major source of revenue. Um, so I'm really curious to see, but my key point here is, I actually do think we see start the, the beginnings of an end game. Now, I think it's going to be really important to kind of keep attention of two different words. There's a difference between a ceasefire agreement and a peace agreement. I think the latter is much harder. I think what we're most likely to get or the, the kind of the most graspable is a ceasefire. It's kind of like the North Korea situation or the Cyprus situation where they just agree. They just agree to stop fighting and settle in to the existing lines. Um, and it becomes a frozen conflict. And, 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 and Vladimir Putin does frozen conflicts really, really well. Um, so where does the conflict freeze and under what terms? I really do want to re I, I want to emphasize, uh, um, Jameson's uh, points about sanctions. These sanctions are going to be in place for decades. This is not going to get lifted easy, uh, quickly, especially if it's just a ceasefire arrangement, because if Russia still controls a good chunk of Ukraine that Ukraine doesn't agree to, that places like Mariupol are not rebuilt, that basically the conflict is frozen, then why would any government want to really lift the sanctions. And the United States in particular has a, our, our tradition of sanctions is they just don't get lifted. So many sanctions are written into law, for instance. And so this idea that people can walk away really quickly um, is, 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 I think, unrealistic. I think this is decadal. Um, if you Clearly, some sanctions will be lifted, probably on the banking system to help kind of ease kind of payments and so forth. But the idea that Russia will ever reopen for business in our lifetimes in a, in a, in a, in a sense of normalcy kind of re, I think is, is completely unrealistic. Um, so, but I would really pay attention very closely to what is being agreed. And then what is the format? Because we all know the Minsk agreement didn't work and look where it got us. And I think there's this, there is going to be this real sense of demand for ironclad commitments by Russia. Um, and, and really close paying attention to is Russia complying? That's a years long process. Um, so I would, I would, I would, uh, that's one caution. I think another big issue is again what Jameson pointed to, which I think is really interesting, is how sanctions were slapped on willy-nilly, and then how companies and investors pulled out or self-sanctioned. Um, and what it's striking to me is this is this really very much you could think of it as a nationalist movement. Um, people, companies, just saying that Russia is toxic. That's a nationalist 
stance. Um, and it's really hard to say Russia is not toxic anymore. Um, clearly, as Jameson said, companies will be wanting to go back and, 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 and um, uh, seize opportunities, perhaps reopen their businesses, and that will certainly happen. But what's quite remarkable, and this gets to this larger issue that I think um, that Mark got to, is we're really in a much more nationalist, fractured world. Um, and it's just, again, quite striking how, in, in a sense, what we're seeing is cancel culture writ large against Russia. And how do you reverse cancel culture? Um, and it's just a very, I don't mean to endorse cancel culture or this idea or even kind of the, the wars that are going on in the United States, but it is something that becomes entrenched and the fighting over it, I think, is is very critical. So that's, I think, what Jameson was pointing to is it's going to be very controversial and very hard fought around lifting sanctions, but also companies going back in. And again, I want to go back to my point that I made a couple of weeks ago is in some ways, Russia is the biggest ESG failure. And so in a world of heightened ESG awareness, those hurdles now are much higher. This crisis has raised the hurdles, again, with ESG scrutiny of going back in. Um, I, I do really think that so much of the Russian economy is now toxic. Um, and people are going to be handling just even assets abroad that might be disposed are going to be perceived as toxic or laden with risk. We, I want to jump in, um, uh, I mean, in, in a second on the China question, but you see this toxic sense of toxicity even among businesses in China. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, I would recommend that you go to Jeffrey Sonnenberg's uh, Russia sanctions list out of Yale University. And he's put, he's been tracking where the, what companies are doing and what they're not, who, who, who's pulling out. And he's created these, these gradations and giving them A's to D's. And again, what I'm pointing at is that there's this um, really heightened scrutiny and naming and shaming. And so there, and companies are, are pulling out. So you saw this week that Heineken and Carlsberg pulled out under increasing pressure. Um, Renault said it was going to stay in and then got pressured to pull out. Obviously, Nestle has done the same. Um, you, and so you see this naming and shaming. So you can imagine the naming and shaming ex, for companies that are want to, seem to want to go back at some point. Um, again, I think this kind of cancel culture, nationalism, deglobalization that Mark pointed to is, is, is really big. I also want to point to, again, this issue that uh, Jamie said is is really the and this was a question that came out in the earlier discussion was the the catastrophic loss to Russia. Just a, a few words about the oligarchs. I the one way to think about this war and wars in general can be tremendous leveling events, economic leveling events. And what you're basically seeing is the Russian oligarch and certainly the Ukrainian oligarch class being eviscerated, financially eviscerated, leveled. For many Russians, this is a great thing. There is no love loss. So in some ways, Putin is achieving the leveling and the, the knocking down of the, of the Russian oligarch class. So who are we going to be doing business with in the future? Who is going to be there to kind of lead the, um, the, the resurrection of Russian business that's not 
a security forces type, still a key person, right? Who are going to be our counterparties? We're seeing this, so this great leveling of the Russian business class. It's like, well, who's going to emerge as reputable business people in the future? I think is a, again, is a many years process. Um, the question came about what is the greatest threat to Putin? The greatest threat to Putin, I think, is it's not the, it's not the oligarchs, as I just mentioned. It's the rush. It's the European reorientation of its energy. If you think about, again, as, 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 as Jefferson said, stopping buying coal and oil this year and gas in within the next few years, you're basically taking the legs out of the Russian economy. That is catastrophic for Russia. If, if, if Europe actually pulls this off, I think it's, it's, it's significant. And Russia can't reorient fast enough to sell to other countries. Um, and this, so the energy transition for Russia, I think, is going to be staggering, potentially. That is the biggest threat. And if you think even of a partial uh, diversification, European diversification against ener Russian energy, what it takes, it just essentially takes the legs out of the Russian economy. So what are companies, what's going to be the Russian middle class? What is going to be interesting and attractive in the Russian economy? I think if you, um, if you look at the latest um, outlooks, um, one that we, you know we we've been paying attention to. I, I can't remember who it's being attributed to. It'll come to me in a second. But a 15% decrease drop in the Russian economy this year, 3% next year. I mean, the, the Russian economy is going to is going back at least a decade and a half in growth, losing growth of a decade and a half. So again, is the economy going to bounce back and be exciting and interesting um, as, as 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 a place to invest? Um, I was looking at a couple just quick questions about the, the China piece, and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll stop. I think it's, first of all, what you see out of China and out of the leadership is they want to have it both ways. They want to be friends, and they want, they want to stay loyal. They see you know, Russia as a strategic partner against this kind of more centuries-long uh, battle with the West. Um, and the re reclamation of, of, of Chinese grandeur um, as a global leader. Um, but they also kind of want to, you know, they, they, at, you know, ever since the 1950s, it's about non-aggression, peace, cooperation. Um, um, uh, and they, they, they've had this kind of mantra, you know, for a, for a half a century. They want it both ways. Interesting thing is, is that China experts that I talk to say that there's actually constitutionally, in, they just are incapable of actually playing a brokering role here. They just want to keep their head down and, 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 and hope for the best. And they really don't want to play a role and they can't play a role. What this means is the China brand is getting tarnished. They're not, it, this, again, this response to Ukraine is a, this global outpouring of empathy. And then you see China over there apathetic. So you see this really, tarnishing and diminishing of the Chinese brand as a global leader. And, and where do they, what, are, what do they stand for? And so you see, obviously, investors, you know, uh, a lot more concern about investing in China. And you've seen tremendous volatility in the Chinese stock market. Um, again, remember the Chinese economy, they've set a very high goal of 5.5% growth, but you've got this global instability. You've got COVID in the country. You've got the real estate um, uh, uh, shakeout. You've got, uh, 
their their kind of heavy regulation of of of, of technology platforms. So there's so much going on in China right now. There's while President Xi is trying to uh, get a third term. So again, incapable of brokering and also really incapable of and not wanting to really rock the boat with Taiwan in the near future. Um, I, 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 I took a quick glance, my last point, I took a quick glance at that spreadsheet. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and where are the investment opportunities? I think I, just two that I didn't see people mentioning. One, I'm, you know, I'm very much of an ESG and environmental in, in, investor, but I didn't see anybody talking about defense stocks. Think about all the gear from Europe that is being shipped to Ukraine and being used. So the Europeans have to restock, one. The Germans have committed to a historic buildup of arms, which is going to encourage other European countries to uh, actually step up their, their spending, let alone the threat that they, that's perceived from, from Russia. Um, and obviously, Ukraine is going to, um, and the U.S. Are, are increasing their spending. So defense stocks, um, not only here, but in places like you know, uh, Tur- Turkey, which is, has seen tremendous um, PR benefits for its drones. Um, EJ, I just... It, it was there. It was just hidden. So it wasn't a, wasn't a perfect. I'll send it to you. Okay, good, good, good. And then I, another one I'm really curious is is the airline um, leasing. Um, what you're seeing is so many planes being stranded in Russia, and the longer they're grounded without any kind of maintenance records, um, those planes become just eventually unusable. Um, they, they can't they can't be flown back and used again, or it's going to be tremendous cost. So. What happens when you see so many planes taken out of the global fleet? Um, and, you know, obviously the shakeout in for the companies, those, just those based in Dublin. So I think that's going to be another really interesting um, sector to watch and, and, and how, to, how, to, how to think that. I'll stop there. Thank you, DJ. Uh, questions? Bill, I'll give you the first question. Sure. <laughs> so... What, in, in thinking about this, this conflict, uh, I, I, I go back to the human missile crisis. And one of the things that eventually sort of brought it to an end was that Kennedy called Khrushchev's bluff on the nuclear question. And thus far, the U.S. has, has been unwilling and anybody else has been unwilling to call that bluff on on Putin, um, DJ, I, I think maybe going back to your Iran roots, you know what what do you what do you think about that? Do you do you do you think we could successfully, or is Putin really so far gone that he would actually entertain the nuclear option? I don't think he will entertain the nuclear option. Um, what we've seen throughout this war is actually very conservative decision making um, around use of weapons. And I think I think Jamie's point about so many of these weapons just aren't working. Right. So they're having to just rely on dumb bombs, you know, kind of World War Two kind of strategy and tactics. Um, I mean, it's obviously quite devastating, um, but I don't see. it escalating to that point. On the other hand, 
I one of the, in 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 the White House briefings that I've been part of, what is striking is that there have been no communications of any material of any of any material communications between the U.S. and Russia. Um, they are not taking our calls. And, I, and, and apparently this is happening at all levels in the, in the di- diplomatic channels, but in, very importantly in the military channels. The U.S. military at all different levels is reaching out and the Russians are just not taking the call. Now, what does that tell me is either one, they're really preoccupied and they can't pick up the phone, which doesn't necessarily make sense. It is actually they don't even know what to say. They don't even know what to say. And this goes to this idea, again, uh, the, the image you heard earlier of Putin just sitting by himself and his, 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 his lieutenants at the other side of the room. And they're like, what do we say to the Americans when they call? So I think there is actually a sense of real paralysis in Russia. And so even maybe perhaps, I don't want to speculate. I mean, it's impossible to speculate about nuclear weapons, but perhaps even paralysis there. Um, and, and, and we don't want to, we don't want to touch them. Um, I think one way to think about this is the Ukrainians have called the Russian bluff. This is a stunning defeat for Russia already, already. Um, and, and we see this, this now kind of effort to pull back. It, it reminds me again of how the Finns defeated um, uh, the Soviets um, and the, at the beginning of World War II um, or in the eve of World War II, um, just devastating. Um, and I think that is in some ways much more, um, I, what you actually see is Russia having to come to terms with the Ukraine that actually has staying power. In a Ukraine that, that, the Soviet man, such as Putin, could never internalize his real country. Yep. To hey, that, DJ? To, Mike, Mark, wait. Yeah, yeah. hey, DJ, uh, just a quick question for you. It's probably, I'm probably answering it myself, but it's a hypothesis. But I'm much more familiar with China, having spent much of my time over a 25-year period there from the late 80s onward. And there was always a backdrop in interacting with government officials, this ideological backdrop, despite the liberalizations that Deng Xiaoping uh, took leadership there, that the West was capitalist, corrupt, and greedy, and therefore would always do business with them. Do you think there's that sort of ideological backdrop with Putin and Russia, and they were quite surprised by the breadth of the sanctions, but more importantly, uh, the cancel culture elements. Do you think there's, do you think Putin or the leadership there is a little bit surprised by the, by the reaction? Yeah. If you kind of paid attention to Putin's cancel culture speech, it's extremely defensive. Um, I, I, this is again, the, again, the, the, the breadth of the sanctions. And this includes things like, you know, canceling sports events or Russian membership in global sports federations and, and canceling artistic and cultural events. Um, it's quite stunning. Um, and clearly 
Putin was trying to divide the West. That was his strategy. And his buildup, you know, he thought he could divide Germany. He thought he could divide parts of Europe. He thought he could divide Europe from the United States. Um, and that exactly as you said, the capitalist urge would just kind of, you know, keep going. And, um, again, I, I do believe, I think words like delusion are, are accurate. Um, certainly in this time, after two years of COVID imposed isolation for Putin himself, I think his manias, this, you know, this grandeur of Russia, this greater Russia mania, um, the West as an enemy mania, um, and, you know, reinforcing these other sub themes such as, you know, cap, greedy capitalism will, they'll always do a cut a deal. I, I think shows us have obviously clearly shown the limits of that. Back, back to your um, earlier point about the, I guess, Russian, uh, Russians not taking American calls. Um, I haven't really seen a lot on this, but I was wondering if you had a perspective on whether or not within the military, who seems to just be taking orders and not have a firm Mother Russia view the way Putin has, whether there may be cracks in the military um, for people who either pose him, low morale in the military against the war. Um, at least a little I've read. So is there a potential, um, I don't want to say coup, but um, military, strong internal military, military opposition, which just adds a little bit more pressure to Putin? Well, I, I yes, Roger, thank you. Um, I'm not a Russian military expert, but I have been fascinated by the analyses coming out of the U.K., and out of the U.S. of these kind of military research institutes, we're basically following day-to-day Russian troop movements and so forth. So let me just kind of pile up a, a few data points. First of all, take Jameson's point. I think that's fascinating, the idea that the gear just isn't working. Um, uh, if you if the, the, the New York Times put together a documentary piece a couple few days ago just about documenting and listening over eavesdropping the communications between battlefield commanders and the kind of sense that they had no they don't have support they're not coordinated they're even having difficulty communicating and they seem distressed all right so your 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 military is in the field and they're in complete distress and it's chaos um so what are the generals and then the generals are being killed at a at a very high pace um, high level, they're losing a, a key level of their, their officer corps, um, obviously, and the devastating casualties. And if, if you know, if 15, that number 15,000 is accurate, that's devastating. Um, and so what does it do to the pride of the military, the, the role of the military in Russia, and obviously the role of the military as a pillar of, of Putin's Putinism? So, yes, with Political destabilization comes oftentimes when the elites, elite classes divide. Now, we've talked already about kind of divisions between the government and, and, and business elites. I don't think that's a big that's a big one right now. But, yes, if the military is divided um, or you see military hedging, 
clearly there's a lot of freelancing going on in the military. You saw it in the 2014 war, freelancing. So you can see this independent decision-making perhaps continuing or independent chaos. Um, if the Russian military is flailing as bad as these kind of data points suggest, um, is there a, uh, what does that do to regime stability? Now, the transmit, the one, my final point is, is, but what is the transmission belt to the Kremlin? Um, what we've seen is that, again, we have this extremely kind of narrow decision making, you know, all, all the way up to, up to the top. It's like, well, how does that military chaos in the field then get to the top? And, and, you know, does Shoigu, the defense minister, actually act? I'm, national, I'm sorry, the um, head of the National Security Council, does he actually act on it? I, if you haven't watched, and people were talking earlier about scenarios for Putin's exit. I mean, watch the film The Death of Stalin yes. and how all these people around him are just nervous and bumbling and, <clears throat> and paralyzed because they don't know what to do because the great leader is dead. Well, if the great leader is perceived as in, is failing or imperfect, it's the same situation. It's like, who in the military, who's going to organize, who has any standing to organize against? It's, it's a very chaotic situation then at Russia. Can I just ask a, a, a bit of a transition question because we're going to turn it over to what we're doing as a community, working with other communities about uh, aid and humanitarian aid. Sure. Uh, you talked about who wants to do business with, with Russia, what kind of counterparty would it be. What, what about Ukraine mm. in this transition. How do you see the opportunities there? Because uh, right now we're sort of like plugging holes. You know, we're helping with uh, medical aid, we're helping some tel- telecom aid, some food aid, ambulances. I'm really proud of the community and, and our partnerships with, uh, with, with Paula Schwartz, which, which she's doing um, as a German Greek next gen. has uh, been great. But how do you see, uh, you know, the, let's say the both multilateral and the entrepreneurial uh, opportunities for investors, short, medium, long term for investing in Ukraine? Right. Um, I was struck the, uh, the the Ukrainian minister of economics just came out with a thumbnail estimate that this war has cost Ukraine a half a trillion dollars. Um, and that's in damage as well as lost economic opportunity. So one question is, is, you know, how quickly does the economy bounce back? Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is significant parts of Ukraine haven't been severely impacted and are still intact. And I think of Odessa. I think, you know, one question that to, to watch and to look at, again, if I focus on Mariupol is, what is Ukraine's export capacity in the future? Where, wh- what is it able to export and what does it literally have the infrastructure to export? I'll be watching that really quickly. Um, again, this issue of EU membership. Now, full EU membership is probably a long ways off, but when EU, if they're really having this possibility, if, if Ukraine negotiates this, I mean, there's going to be significant funds, you know, for rebuilding coming from the EU. How much? They pledged two billion right now. I don't know how much, but again, I would watch that. Obviously, EU invests heavily in infrastructure. Um, will be investing heavily in infrastructure if any on, on the recovery. Um, I want to see, and I don't know yet, but what we've really seen is 
nationalism, national pride, um, really be kindled in Ukraine? Again, this kind of we can do it. And for me, the question is, is how does this, let's just say, the war is frozen enough that it, it gets rid of the political risk aspect and people start rebuilding. You know, how much of this kind of national pride gets channeled into really difficult projects such as anti-corruption, um, transparency, uh, rule of law? Um, you know, this kind of can-do attitude. Clearly, what we've seen is entrepreneurial behavior in this war, which is just quite stunning. And does that translate into kind of like a can-do post-war business mentality? You know, does it look like Japan? I, I, I know it's an extreme, but, you know, this you have nationalism, but then you kind of also have this kind of rebuilding. Um, and, of course, it depends on the level of, of, of foreign aid. But um, I think it's a little too early to tell, but that's what I'm going to be watching. Those are some of the indicators I'm going to be watching for. Great. I guess, I, Mark, much, I would just make one other quick comment. One, a very good friend of mine who is a, uh, does, has significant lending to Ukraine has been struck, and in fact, one bank, um, they've been in constant touch with the bank. And the bank is saying, like, we're paying, we're paying on time. We're, we're, I mean, it's striking how many U- U- Ukrainian businesses, as opposed to, you know, in many ways, a contrast to Russia, are saying, we are going to, you know, stay solvent and, and, and pay our debts. And that's, to me, they've got some sense of the future and the value of the future. Um, Paul, if you're, if you're there, uh, I was hoping you could, you could join and say, uh, you know, reintroduce yourself to some who don't know you. And, you know, I, I, I can't keep up. Uh, this, this is a couple of days behind, but, you know, we've, you've been focusing on all these things at the bottom of the screen from humanitarian and medical uh, connectivity, you know, in other categories. And you've been a great connector. I love that we have that, the, the, the winds of late with uh, you and Simon. Um, and we're, we're in the medical kit and hopefully very soon the telecom. Um, there's just, you know, just have, if you were to, you know, this is, you, Paula to me represents, you know, and some of her circles, uh, people that sort of are, that, that can do entrepreneurial attitude, you mentioned, uh, DJ, uh, it's not just in Ukraine. It's really it's helped you know galvanize the world and particularly in Europe. Um, so on that note, Paul, maybe you could could uh, shine some lights. Sure. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to present. Um, yeah, my name is Paula Schwartz. I'm half Greek and half German. I live at the border between Greece and Turkey, and I first was introduced to the whole topic around mass migration because of the Syrian refugee crisis. And um, there, starting in 2015, we worked a lot with um, military personnel, um, government officials, and um, officials of supranational organizations of the UN, of um, militaries around the globe, who came together and said that it needs something like a decentralized nation like the UN, essentially, um, to secure peace in all other nations based on technology as well and innovation. So they said that um, it's time for a new DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization called the Cloud Nation, um, which is this decentralized country. And so what we're doing right now with Ukraine is that we're applying the learnings that we've gathered in the refugee crisis that was deriving from Syria. And we're looking at the use case of Ukraine. It's obviously very unfortunate what is happening. 
Um, nevertheless, there's a lot of expertise on the ground. A lot of people want to help. There's a massive involvement of volunteers. Um, there's um, at the moment, incredible databases when it comes to uh, mentorship programs, for example. There's um, psychological aid programs that we've seen um, happen in Ukraine, um, which apparently was not something that was so prominent before the war. So um, psycho psychological caretaking of oneself was not so high up on the list. And now there's um, telephone services also for children where they can call and say, that they have, um, you know, the need to talk to someone. This is in Russian and in Ukrainian language. Um, then there's transportation services that we've seen where drivers can register their cars. Obviously, there's um, security risks linked to that. Um, but um, we're seeing that there's um, the security risks are because of human trafficking and um, because of violence that could occur. And um, then, you know, what happens if there's an accident? And things like these, um, and then gradually uh, it came to um, to be problematic um, with the human trafficking amounts of euros um, that were being asked um, from drivers, because some people, for example, to go from Lviv um, from Mariupol, um, I think that was a one-time journey, and a person wanted five thousand euro only for a trip within Ukraine. And so um, we did see human trafficking increase quite a lot, um, which was worrying. But here again, there was a very interesting opportunity to partner with existing technological services like Uber, like Lyft. Um, you all know them. And I think Airbnb also tried very hard to actually um, uh, shine a light on the crisis because what they tried to do is to um, provide free housing to, I think it was 100,000 people who were affected by the crisis. Unfortunately, by now we're talking about 3.9 million refugees apparently leaving Ukraine. So um, 100,000 doesn't quite cover it. And it seems like um, this apparently great marketing opportunity for Airbnb did not actually um, did not actually um, execute or was not executed so well. Sorry, I just had a be in front of me um, and, oh. it's gone. and um, yeah uh, in the beginning also food was not so much of an issue um, in the region because the supplies were full and now more and more um, the food is running out um, uh, cities like Mariupol are isolated it seems as though the, um, the support lines are very much organized um, over the European borders um, and on the side of Belarus, it is very difficult for the people in Ukraine, um, also because it's hard to actually bring aid into the into the region. And um, it's definitely not advised to do something like meetups or um, educational activities for children. So that's not working at all, um, which is why, again, um, technological services are important. And so um, with this group um, led by Mark Sainer, we were very, very lucky to um, get funding for 10 ambulances. These ambulances are linked to a mesh network of Starlink. And so they also serve as um, mobile electronic um, um, charging stations and they have Wi-Fi so that um, the vehicle actually, um, which is an old um, vehicle that we purchased from Germany, it's an old ambulance from Germany, um, it goes somewhere and 
um, it charges up the medicinal supplies that are needed and tents and then um, and actually um, goes into a region where um, where there's a certain need um, and sets up the tent and has a heater inside as well um, and um, coordinates um, medical and humanitarian aid in um, that region that is so heavily affected. And so with 10 of these um, uh, vehicles, we can actually do a lot. We can form like a decentralized hospital unit. We can also house people in the tents uh, that we're providing and we're connected to storage facilities at the border to Poland so that we can keep on um, refueling uh, supplies into the ecosystem, um, which is um, a great win. So thank you very much, Mark, again, for making that connection. And yeah, so um, another thing is jobs. Um, what we see from the from the European market is that employers have been very, very um, eager to provide jobs for um, Ukrainians, which was um, pleasing to see because, um, as I mentioned, we started our work in the Syrian refugee crisis. And so um, the relationship between the Arab region and, Syria, and uh, Europe is somewhat different um, or was somewhat different when it came to um, educating or training people. Um, for them to actually start getting jobs in Europe. Um, now with the Ukrainians, we see that uh, Germans are really helping them a lot. They're housing many people. Um, the, the German um, civilians are very, very helpful, and um, mentorship programs are uh, plenty on the, on the radar. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's um, it for me for now. Um, maybe, I mean, we've already talked um, widely about Russia. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we've had is um, cyber attacks from Russia um, on um, certain key people who are um, very active as engineers. Um, there was an attack also from friends of mine um, or colleagues of mine who work in McKinsey um, there. Cyberforce called us one day and said um, that they had been hacked and um, they were investigating the situation. So um, it seems as though uh, it's not extremely friendly, um, the tone coming from um, from the Russian Cyberforce. And, um, and it's also very hard to get people out of Russia. So um, maybe you know that some governments also um, try to recruit Russian peacekeepers. So they're offering um, positions to Russian soldiers who don't want to um, fight anymore. The German oh. government has been very effective there. 